0: everyone, Rick Cole here with episode number three of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast brought to you by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online archive of historical newspapers, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Colvern, Ontario. In this week's show, we have news and notes from the period between October 18th, November 7th of the 1969 hockey season. Some of the things we'll be talking about include some thoughts from Carl Brewer on his comeback to the NHL with the Detroit Red Wings, Eddie Shack's auspicious debut with the Los Angeles Kings at the Forum Arena in Los Angeles. We even have a few words from Eddie today. We'll talk about Marv Edwards' debut with the Toronto Maple Leafs and an interesting lawsuit that an associate of Alan Eagleson was considering launching against the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. We'll talk about the Vancouver Buffalo Expansion Project and a lot more today on the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Now this week, since we're covering a slightly longer time period than we have been to catch up to the actual dates, we'll have more shorter, quicker hits rather than longer features There's just so much we want to talk about, but we do want to give the impending NHL expansion the coverage it deserved that things began to move more quickly with some significant developments. First up this week, we'll have the very, very spectacular debut made by Eddie the Entertainer Shaq as he played his first game as a Los Angeles King before the home crowd at Jack Kent Cook's Arena, The Fabulous Forum. A crowd of just over 10,000 showed up to see what all the hullabaloo was about over this exuberant winger acquired over the summer by the Kings from the Boston Bruins. The real hockey fans in Los Angeles knew what Eddie Shack would bring to the Kings. It might not represent artistic success, but he would definitely increase the entertainment factor for a team that had, up to this point in his existence, lacked color and excitement. On that opening night of the 1969-70 season, Eddie showed them that and a lot, lot more. Eddie scored three goals to lead the hometown Kings to a 5 nothing win over their California rivals, the Oakland Seals. It was sweet revenge for Hal Lako's squad. They had been embarrassed the night before by those same Seals by a 5-1 count at the Oakland Arena. Goalie Jerry Desjardins made 30 saves for the Kings, but not many of those were of the difficult variety for a fairly routine shutout. But the night belonged to Eddie Shack. He earned his third career hat trick, opening the scoring at 15:19 of the first period. He then added a second goal at 9:12 of the middle stanza and completed the trick at 2:32 of the third. All three markers were scored on Seals goalie Gary Smith. I caught up to Eddie last week at the monthly NHL alumni luncheon at the Steelcase Girl House in North York, Ontario. Eddie was there to promote his new book, written in collaboration with Ken Reed of Sportsnet. Now, if you follow us on Twitter, you may remember our report on Eddie's late arrival at the Kings training camp in Barrie, Ontario in mid-September of 1969. The story, as it was reported at the time by several outlets, was that Eddie was late for camp and he had rented or commandeered, depending on whose story you believe, a helicopter in Toronto and was flown to the arena in Barrie, where he rushed to the rink. Eddie told me that wasn't quite the case. Eddie explained that the flight to Barry was actually a publicity stunt by owner Jack Kent Cooke himself. Here's a bit of the conversation that Eddie and I had at the Steelcase Tavern this week.
1: Jack, Jack Kent, Kent Cooke, yeah. And he wanted to get publicity for in L.A. and that. And then the, yeah. he, what they did, they brought me in from... Toronto to Barry Uh huh. And that was training camp. So they took you in by helicopter? Yeah, they took me in by helicopter and yeah. they wanted to cause some excitement or whatever it is. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, you certainly did that. What'd you think of Jack Kent Cook?
1: Oh, he was all right, but when I went down and he said, What do you think of uh, You know, he, he was so proud of the, of the arena, right? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, Oh, just like uh, Boston Gardens.
0: <laughs> oh, geez. Well, he must have been mad at that. Oh, yeah. Yeah?
1: But you have to watch it with him because he thinks he's so much. And then I, and like with me uh, playing in L.A., I had fun and I did what I wanted, wanted to do. And mm-hmm. I like that didn't bother me. And then they had the, the coach they had was. Uh, Al Laco, right. So the, the the first game we play, I get a hat trick.
0: Uh huh.
1: And then he wants to he wants to, to be the coach. He wants to he's wants to do everything his way, right? He's the boss. Yeah. He wanted me to back check, and I said, <laughs> "Go and stick it in your crease." I'm not back checking. I'm I score goals. You know what I mean? And, uh-huh. but, uh huh. But certain coaches I didn't get along with Phil Watson right I didn't yeah. get along with him very well right our, our first when I played for like from Guelph to New York that's where, that's when I went and then mm-hmm. playing for New York we 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 weren't going that well eh and then we, we lost like five games and then it was Andy Bathgate Dean Prentice uh, like all the old Rangers all the old Rangers right so we're going to have a meeting, and it's in Montreal, and we're sitting around, and the meeting, nothing will be held against you. You can say whatever you want. Mm-hmm. I said, isn't that great, eh? Like, you know what I mean? If you feel like you... you, you know. So it goes to Bathgate, well, maybe we should work a little harder. goes to Fontanato, maybe we should, you know what I mean, getting more sleep, maybe we should be, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. thinking more about hockey and everybody. And I said, Phil... Well, everything that you've said to me has gone in this year and out the other. Wow, holy... It it, it, it was cancelled right there. I said, well, maybe we might get some more really good stories about you, Bill, right? (laughs) Go, the meeting's finished. We walk out in the hallway. He said, you're going to Springfield. Uh Uh-oh. I said, isn't that something, eh? Now, nothing be held against you, and here I am, 20 years old, and I'm going to Springfield, right? So I went to Springfield, Eddie Shore, and... Oh, that must have been... And then I, I, I got sent down for two weeks, and mm-hmm. then, then they, they bring you back and they trade you or whatever they want, right? So now I, I get sent down, and then there was... Uh, Don Cherry was there, too, right? Okay. And then Eddie, Eddie Shore, he, he, he was like own the arena and everything else and he used to have to sell pop and everything else and, yeah. the, and, the, and the, the, uh, the interviews would be a lot longer than you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean so now I go down to Springfield I, I'm getting hat tricks I'm getting and, and I'm, I'm enjoying it <laughs> Eddie Shore loves me right and I now they phone me to come back right I'm not coming back. I'm not You told him you weren't going back I'm not the going NET. back. I said wow. I don't I'm staying here. I'm 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 enjoying it. I'm having fun. Then Bathgate and then uh, George uh, George Sullivan. That's Sullivan. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He then he they they talked me into coming back, right? Mm-hmm. So I come back and I get traded. So the no, I get oh, traded to trade Detroit. But it
0: didn't go through.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I went like it was uh, Red Kelly, mm-hmm. and then it was, it was uh, Billy uh, Bill Gadsby, Bill Gadsby, yeah. and myself for Red Kelly yeah. and McNeil or whatever mm-hmm. it was, right? Billy McNeil. So now we get traded, and then I'm mouthing off to to uh, Watson again. You know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> and I'm saying, this, and then all of a sudden now the deal falls through. Red's not going to New York. And now I'm mad at Red, right? Because he's, he's not going to New York. And then the, then the deal is canceled. So now I got to go back to New York. And then, and then everything else, it, it worked out perfect because when Red didn't, then I got traded to, to Toronto. And then... Uh, and then I met so many great people, and I and, and people loved me in Toronto, you know what I well, mean? Oh, they did. We all did. Yeah. And then they treated you with a little bit of, you know...
0: Okay, Eddie. Uh, how are you? Thanks very much.
1: Okay, okay. thank you, eh?
0: I will talk to you again, for sure. Carl Brewer, now of the Detroit Red Wings, sat down with Jack Berry, of the Detroit Free Press early in the season to talk about his comeback to the NHL after being away from the big league for four years. Here's a few of the uh, thoughts Carl has about coming back to the NHL. Now, Barry started off the interview by asking, you, start, you only played one game in the minor leagues before you went up to Toronto to begin your NHL career. You didn't get an idea of how things were in the minors until you'd been an all-star defenseman in the NHL. What was it like after you left the NHL and went down to various leagues as an amateur after walking away from the Maple Leafs? Carl said, It's kind of a different, difficult question. I've been impressed with anything. It's been the universality of hockey. It's the same whether you're in Muskegon, Michigan, Des Moines, Iowa, Hanselville, Finland, or Winnipeg, Manitoba. Carl was asked what he likes about hockey. What's kept him in the game after all these years? Carl said, For me, hockey is basically hell. But I would really like to be able to play it and enjoy it. I do enjoy it, but I'd like to be at peace with myself playing it. It's a great game, and the satisfactions are immediate. The satisfactions are so immediate. They're there, they happen. Whereas working somewhere else, I think you have to wait a long time before the boss pats you on the back. Here you don't need anyone to pat you on the back, although it does help. The satisfaction is there, and you can feel it when you've done a good job. Carl was asked if he parted on friendly terms with Meek Belief's then-General Manager Coach Punch Imlac. Carl said, yes, I think people misconstrue the whole situation there. I never made any public statements as to why I left hockey when I did. I had no reason to make public statements as such. It was a a decision I'd made with myself, with Punch and I are basically on good terms. There are some things that he does that are right, and there's some things he does that I look upon as wrong. But that's incidental because I know I make a lot of mistakes. We all do. Jack asks Carl, do you feel Carl Brewer has become a more complete man in the time you've been away from the NHL? Interesting answer by Carl on this one. I don't know that that is important. In my own mind, I'm living the type of life I want to lead. A guy who influences my thinking a lot is Frank Mahavlitch. I have nothing but admiration for him as a man, as a humanitarian, and as a thinker. Whether I've become more complete as a person, I don't know. But I've done the things I wanted to do. I always wanted to live in another country. I've lived in the United States, but in a very broad sense, I don't consider it to be another country. I consider it to be part of the North American ethic. I always wanted to live in a European country, and I certainly don't regret that experience. Carl went on to talk about the Big M, his relationship with Big Frank Mahavlich, and how he approached the game of hockey, and that led to a final question in the interview by Jack Barry, which had to do with current events of that particular week. Carl was asked, How do you feel about the firing of Bill Gadsby, and how will it affect the team? Carl's answer was succinct. I don't think it's very wise for me to comment on that situation. I haven't been here very long, not long enough to comment. I think Gordie Howe, who has become hockey's articulate spokesman, expressed himself very well and the feelings generally, of everyone in hockey in the respect they have for Bill Gadsby. And that was Carl Brewer with Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press. Last summer, actually last spring, right after the Stanley Cup playoffs, the Maple Leafs fired coach, general manager Punch Inlak, and venerable goaltender Johnny Bauer said he was retiring as well. Over the summer, New Toronto Maple Leaf general manager Jim Gregory acquired a 34-year-old goalie named Marv Edwards from the Pittsburgh Penguins. Marv had, at this point in his hockey career, played just one NHL game, that with the Penguins. Marv, a native of St. Catharines, Ontario, performed extremely well in the Toronto training camp and so impressed new coach John McClellan that he made the team to start the season. Now, McClellan had a bit of inside information on Marv. See, Johnny had coached Edwards for several seasons when they were both at Nashville in the Eastern Hockey League. Marv was considered by far the best netminder in that league, winning that award several times. Marv made his Toronto Maple Leaf debut at home at Maple Leaf Gardens against the Chicago Blackhawks on October 20th. It was a winning start as the Leafs downed the visitors 4-1. to In that game, the Hawks fired 40, 37 shots at Marv, with the only one to beat him coming off the stick of Lou Angotti to give Chicago a 1-0 first-period lead. Edwards shut the door after that as the Leafs cruised to the win, Britt Selby, Dave Keon, Mike Walton, and Ron Ellis took care of the Toronto scoring and Edwards talked to reporters a bit after the game. He said he was jittery as a cat before he stopped the first shot on Saturday. He had an idea on Friday that he'd be in the action this weekend, although he didn't get the final word until the pregame meeting. Marv said, I'd like, I figured I'd like to start on the road, less pressure, but then the coach, he had other ideas. Johnny McClellan said that I told Marv on Friday I wanted him to start at home because I was sure he could do the job and I knew that if he was able to break the ice at the gardens his next start would be routine and he was absolutely great. Before the season, everyone claimed our goaltending and defense was suspect. They've only given up seven goals in the four games we've had so far and if the forwards had been as sharp as this, we'd have a few more points. The NHL Board of Governors announced some changes in their disciplinary procedures that would give President Clarence Campbell more authority to deal with these major infractions. Campbell himself suggested these changes to the governors. The changes suggested and approved are The minimum automatic fine for leaving the players bench or penalty bench was increased to $100 from the previous $50. Under the new definition, the president has the power to increase the amount at his discretion under Rule 66, leaving the bench. He has also been authorized to impose a fine of not exceeding $5,000 against any club whose players make a mass exodus from their players bench without sufficient justification in contravention of Rule 66. Now that raises a couple questions for me at the time without sufficient justification. What would constitute sufficient justification for players to leave the bench to join an altercation? Who's going to determine that? And that gives Campbell sole discretion to decide if any bench-clearing brawl is fair or not. Now, as we went into the 70s, we saw the bench-clearing brawls were an accepted method of operation in the National Hockey League. This really doesn't do much to prevent that at all. Now another and possibly most stringent amendment concerned the fact that the president was now authorized to have a player or a club's official salary forwarded to the league headquarters any time that the party is under direct suspension from the president. The remittance of an offender's salary is a new step, however all money collected in this manner doesn't go to the NHL, but quite correctly so, to the NHL Players Emergency Fund under an agreement with the NHLPA. Campbell commented, I did not have any authority to make the club pay in the salary before. Previously, I could only find an individual player a maximum of $500. Now, when this fine is levied and when the club does remit the salary to the league, It's supposed to come right out of the player's pocket, but there's nothing in the rule that prevents the club from paying this player his salary and then forwarding a like amount to the league, and I'm sure they're going to have to deal with that on down the road. More legal-type news, and this one here is a doozy. Bill McMurtry, a law partner of Alan Eagleson, executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association, said that he would bring a lawsuit against the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association if a Quebec amateur hockey player is not allowed to play in Ontario as he wishes. Daniel Bouchard, an 18-year-old goalkeeper who joined the London Knights of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series in um, 1969-70, had been refused a release from his Sorel Quebec Junior Club. That was his last team. The Sorrell team, however, which paid the player $100 a week in 1968-69, refused to release him for compensation or other any other conditions. McMurtry said the problem is that the boy must play in Ontario if he's to get an athletic scholarship in the United States, which is his desire. Daniel has grade 12, but needs to improve his English in school here if he's able to get a scholarship in the United States. Furthermore, there are very few U.S. college scouts who ever travel to Quebec. Bouchard said, I don't have very good English, and I need it. If I'm to go to a U.S. school, my chances would be very poor without better English. Bouchard is enrolled in grade 13 at London Sir Wilfrid Laurier High School. The London team pays him $10 per week plus room and board. Now, Eagleson says, we aren't saying that the rules are wrong just that they must be adjusted in some cases. An amateur shouldn't be forced to accept the same rules as a professional must. If he's not allowed to transfer, the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association will be named a defendant and the Supreme Court of Ontario will be requested to intervene by way of a mandatory injunction. Both Eagleson and McMurtry admitted that the Bouchard case is representative of a large group of players. It is known, for example, that many similar cases already exist in the Northern Ontario Hockey Association besides the Quebec governing body. Another consideration, say the players' lawyers, is that this is Bouchard's final year of junior eligibility, making it all the more important that he play in the highly competitive OHA. They add that Bouchard hasn't signed a contract with Sorel, and had he done so, it wouldn't be binding in any case because he's a minor. Bouchard's first attempts to register with London were July 1st of this year. The Sorel team, however, refused to release Bouchard or negotiate with the London club. As time went on, The case was resolved without the lawsuit, and Daniel Bouchard became a very good goaltender with the London Knights. One of the fun things that I've been enjoying in doing these trips down memory lane is looking at trades that didn't happen but were openly discussed. Sometimes these discussions were made by way of a sports reporter who was actually being used by an agent or a team to promote a player's desire to be moved. One of these involved the Philadelphia Flyers and Chicago Blackhawks and superstar Bobby Hull. Jack Chevalier of the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the Flyers haven't tried to make a trade for Bobby Hull, he says, yet. And even if they do, General manager of the Flyers, Bud Poyle, wouldn't be able to talk about it. Jack talked about the tampering rule in the National Hockey League that would net Poyle a hefty fine if he mentioned Hull's name in public. Flyers President William Putnam explained the procedure to Jack Chevalier of the Inquirer. At least this is part of their on-the-record conversation. If you ask me if the Flyers would like to have Bobby Hull, I'd have to say no comment explained Putnam. If I said yes and you put it in the headlines, then Chicago could claim we were tampering and we'd be subject to the fine. Putnam said the NHL Board of Governors passed the rule for their own protection. Putnam went on to explain, suppose Ed Snyder made a public offer of $1 million for Bobby Hull and said we'd pay him $100,000 a season. That wouldn't help the Chicago Blackhawks and their negotiations with him. The purpose of the rule is to prevent us, the governors, from knifing each other in the back. Of course, an example of this took place this fall when rookie general manager Jim Gregory of the Toronto Maple Leafs politely suggested that he would love to have holdout L.A. Kings defenseman Bill White with the club. Kings general manager Larry Regan went ballistic, as one would expect reported the incident to the National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell, who levied a fine against Gregory, who learned a valuable lesson. Now in this case, Blackhawks General Manager Tommy Ivan told the Inquirer that I'm not entertaining any offers for Hull right now. I just want to get this darn contract thing squared away. Asked if he'd turn a deaf ear to an irresistible trade, Ivan said, no, I'd listen. I've been listening to trade offers for years. So Chevalier went on to say that if the Flyers offered a package like Perrant, Ed Van Imp, and Reggie Fleming for Hull, Ivan would listen. But he and Poyle wouldn't toss such names around publicly because of the tampering fine, which would be about $1,000. Now, it's interesting that those three names would be put forth by Chevalier. One wonders whether Jack just made it up, or like any good journalist, he dug up some information off the record and surreptitiously has put this out there at the behest of someone with a stake in the negotiations. And the big news in hockey this week, for our podcast anyway was the expansion to 14 teams from 12 of the National Hockey League for the 1970-71 season. First up, we have Charlie Barton of the Buffalo Courier Express, Mr. Hockey Reporter for Buffalo in those days, with a story that a Buffalo group headed by Seymour H. Knox III and his brother Northrop would formally make a second application for a National Hockey League franchise within two weeks Of the November 1st deadline, the $6 million price tag attached to the NHL's second phase of expansion might prove too rich for a lot of people, especially in Baltimore and the noise out of Vancouver indicating the same, but it will not deter the group from Buffalo. The Knox brothers led the Buffalo Drive for a franchise in the original expansion program of 1967, but they were turned down when St. Louis, Philadelphia, Minnesota, Oakland, Los Angeles, and Pittsburgh were accepted. And that despite the fact that the Buffalo presentation was probably the best of any applicant at that time. Now the Knox brothers we're in Argentina as November 1st rolled around, and Robert O. Suados, secretary and counsel for the Niagara Frontier Hockey Corporation, said that he had no comment on the rumors that the Knoxes will try once again to put Buffalo into the NHL. But then he added, We are doing our homework. Now, what he meant at that time was that the Knoxes haven't stopped their efforts to bring an NHL team to Buffalo. They made several abortive attempts to transfer the Oakland Seals to the Queen City and they're now minority stockholders in that franchise. Northrop Knox is captain of a U.S. polo team which will meet Argentina in an international match just after November 1st in Argentina. His brother will be there as a spectator. Since becoming stockholders in the Oakland club, the Knoxes and Swados have attended a number of NHL meetings and repeatedly have said their prime hockey interest is to bring an NHL club to Buffalo, not to prop up the Moribund Seals franchise. In addition to Swados, those reportedly associated with the Knoxes include Hazard Campbell, Paul Schellenkamp, Jr., J. Fred Schellenkamp IV, George Goodyear, Joe Stewart, and Arthur Victor Jr. Notably absent from that group are the Pastor brothers. Ruby Pastor, principal owner of the American Hockey League Buffalo Bisons, has said that he will sell his franchise if an NHL club is awarded to the Knox group. Now, any club that would come into the NHL from Buffalo, would be operated in Memorial Auditorium until the Erie County Dome Stadium with a $2 million hockey alternative uh, structure is completed. A proposal on the location of the rink to be incorporated in the stadium will be submitted by architects early next month. The rink will house between 16,000 and 22,000 seats for hockey and even more for basketball. The stadium has not been approved yet and if it isn't then a Buffalo team would have to play in an expanded memorial auditorium which holds just under 10,000. 12,500 is the minimum seating capacity that the NHL has stipulated must be followed to have a NHL franchise. Now here's something that came up right after Charlie Barton put this story out in the Courier Express. It was a column by former Toronto Maple Leafs general manager coach Punch Imlac. Now Imlac, as everyone knows, holds stock in the Western Hockey League Vancouver Canucks and is thought to be a fait accompli that he will become either the general manager, coach, or some other executive when the Vancouver club enters the NHL. Here's what Punch had to say right after the Charlie Barton story. And I'll quote Punch here. I don't know whether Buffalo has made a formal application to the National Hockey League, but I believe it soon will. The gentleman who will, in all probability, make the application is Seymour Knox. He was, during the discussions on expansion, the alternate governor of the Oakland franchise and attended all the meetings in that capacity. It's logical to assume that as a governor, he endorsed the expansion plan laid out by the NHL. When I wrote my first column in the Toronto Telegram, I talked to Knox regarding the plan, and he said he considered it intelligent, practical, and a compromise. I shuddered as I listened but I realized he was just giving me the party line. I have found out that if you ask enough questions to enough people something breaks. Trying to find out how the 6 million dollar figure for a franchise was established I discovered the following story. It seems a lot of the governors were sitting around in New York discussing the tab they were going to put on the new clubs. One suggested 3 million Another said $5 million, another said six. Do you think they'll pay that, asked the governor. Why don't you ask them, was the reply. One is sitting right behind you. So they asked, would you pay $6 million for a franchise Seymour? And Seymour said he would. Now, as my kids would say, how's that grab you? Naturally, I checked the story with the governor, and as he put it, it's so close to the truth that they couldn't sue you over it. I called Reuben Pastor, who has been the benefactor of a hockey club in Buffalo for many years, the American Hockey League Bisons. Presently, the Buffalo Bisons is one of the best in minor leagues, but it was not always this way. Pastor has had to take his lumps, and I must say he never complained, but he sure didn't like it. I asked Pastor if he had sold his club, and he admitted that negotiations were underway, although he declined to name with whom. From the conversation, I gathered that a price had been set and that he would not stand in the way of an NHL franchise coming to Buffalo. Knowing that Ruby Pastor is a community-oriented person, I would bank on the price as very reasonable and, in fact, probably on the low side. Now, Knox wants a franchise so badly he can taste it. He bought into Oakland, hoping to be able to transfer it to Buffalo, but that didn't work out. He then supported the Oakland franchise, hoping that when the next franchises were available, he would get out of Oakland. At the last expansion meeting, his group had the best application. That's the expansion meeting in 1967. For various reasons, they were turned down. Those reasons are still valid today. I've talked to television people in Toronto, and they say there is no doubt that a Buffalo franchise would dilute the Toronto area. Naturally, this could affect the Toronto owners dollar-wise, and boy, that's dynamite. Punch doesn't come right out and say it there, but the reason that the Buffalo franchise was rejected in 1967 was simply blocking by Stafford Smythe of the Maple Leafs, who was not interested in sharing one penny of the television money for all the commercials that they sell so people in the Niagara region will buy products advertised on Toronto. Imlak went on to say, It's also apparent there must be another applicant. If Buffalo was the only one willing to pay $6 million, then in all probability, Toronto could muster enough support to keep them out of the league. There are probably others that have buddies in other cities that will block a Toronto bid to block at this time. Punch said, I feel that Knox would be an asset to the game, and everybody I've talked to has endorsed him as being a real gentleman. The NHL could use a few more men, like Knox. It might help their image. But if Knox has any visions of recuperating his money, there had better be another 16,000 hockey nuts in Buffalo. Well, we all know what happened. There were more than 16,000 hockey nuts in Buffalo. The franchise has been supported very well over the years and at that time was one of the stronger new members of the NHL. Right about this time, all the talk in Vancouver was about how the $6 million expansion fee was highway robbery, far too much, and nobody should be crazy enough to pay it. Well, right after the Barton story came out, Cyrus McLean, president of the Western Hockey League Vancouver Canucks, came up with the most positive statement in the six weeks regarding the city's invitation to join the National Hockey League. There had been considerable controversy regarding the Vancouver Hockey Club's willingness and ability to pay the $6 bucks. At their meeting, the NHL governors gave Vancouver a deadline, December 1st, to either accept their terms or make a down payment or withdraw. However, McLean said, We have every reason to believe that this date could be extended if necessary, and I hope it won't be necessary. At the meeting of the directors, he added, will be held sometime within the week after November 1st and some money might be coming in to help the team make the franchise fee. McLean said, right after Barton's story, I'm optimistic we'll find a way to come up with the 6000000 million. I'm dedicated to this. While I was away on business, I was also in contact with a bunch of hockey people. I do know this. The NHL governor's, object strenuously to the people of Vancouver thinking the $6 million price has been set to keep us out of the NHL and I don't agree with that either. I believe the NHL wants us and they want us in a bad way and we're going to come up with the money to put a team on Canada's West Coast in Vancouver. But in other quarters, that $6 million franchise fee was too much in baltimore zanville krieger the majority stockholder and board chairman of the american hockey league's baltimore clippers did not close the door on future applications but he came right out and said there would be no application for baltimore if the nhl did not drop the fee he cited three major stumbling blocks to any person from Baltimore applying for an NHL franchise, number one, the league wants payments in excess of a total of seven million dollar additional payments to the AHL. Alterations to the Baltimore Civic Center bringing the total cost to between nine and ten million dollars. That's a five million dollar jump over what the franchise price and fees were paid in 1967. Under the new draft regulations for expansion teams, each NHL team would protect 15 players and two goalkeepers, as well as all amateurs up to the age of 22. Now, the Clippers noted that only one player from each existing NHL team would be available for the draft. One player. Number three, the NHL reserved the right to grant a competing franchise to Washington, D.C., which is only about 35 miles from Baltimore. All other league teams have exclusive territorial rights covering a 75-mile radius. Krieger asked, Why should Baltimore go in as a second-rate citizen? I don't think they want to hurt Baltimore, he said, when asked if there was an attempt to exclude the city. They just want to get as much money as possible. The league feels somebody can pay this kind of money. Kriger added that bringing an NHL franchise to Baltimore under these conditions would invite some financial disaster. We have talked to bankers, investment people, and every wealthy person we know here and elsewhere, said Robert Jake Embry, president of the Clippers. Buffalo is still doing their homework. Kriger raised the possibility of a second major hockey league based on the American Hockey League. If the NHL will not bend... There's a real possibility of bringing the American Hockey League to NHL quality. We'll have more on that next week when Mr. Embry expands on his thoughts on a rival hockey league. And of course, right after Baltimore made their announcement, another one came down the pipe as well. That out of Cleveland, where owner of the Cleveland Barons of the American Hockey League, Nick J. Maletti said he is withdrawing his application for an expansion franchise. Clarence Campbell said he received a letter from Maletti that uh, he had written him saying that the $6 million figure was too high and the tentative bid was withdrawn. Maletti operates the Cleveland Arena, which currently has a capacity of 9300 for hockey. Plans had been made to enlarge it, to more than 13,000 seats to meet the NHL standard. Among the costs that also made the uh, bid prohibitive was an indemnity figure to the American Hockey League, a figure which is expected to exceed $1 million. Now, Cleveland had already tried to get into the National League, and that happened back in the 50s when the Barons were owned by Jim Hendy. The Barons were a strong team. Many felt were as strong as one of the six National Hockey League teams that were in existence at that time. Hendy made an application to become a seventh franchise in the National Hockey League, but that application at that time was rejected by the league. Now, the city of Vancouver finally did get a chance to get some money. It was announced that the Metacor Investment Corporation of Minneapolis wanted to assume the majority ownership of the Western Hockey League team with an eye to applying for the National Hockey League expansion franchise. Negotiations started in Vancouver about 2.30 p.m. on November 3rd, and they were expected to resume after a couple of days of back and forth. Acting for the Canucks were President Cyrus McLean and Coley Hall. Negotiating for MediCorps was one forty-four-year-old Tom Scallon of Minneapolis, who was the president of the company. The company was started in nineteen fifty-seven as a company leasing medical equipment three years before 1969 Scallon expanded it into the sports entertainment field and they were also uh, instrumental in purchasing the Shasta Corporation of San Francisco in 1967 which owned Johnson Ice Follies. Now Scallon was in Vancouver last June to arrange a the 1969-70 world premiere of the Ice Follies International at the Pacific Coliseum, he liked what he saw about Vancouver and decided it was time to get involved in the National Hockey League. Scallon said, our job is marketing entertainment. We feel there's a lot of opportunity in Canada as well as in the U.S. People have rising incomes and more time, leisure time. They want to be entertained. We would like to receive the receipts of the Canadian operation in Canada. It just isn't practical or good business to try to take the money into the U.S. It makes more sense to put it back in Canada. Now, Scallon is no stranger to the Canadian hockey scene. Two years ago, he attempted to purchase a majority share of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He backed off when he found that the price for a 60% of ownership of Maple Leaf Garden stock would cost him a whopping $16 million. This story will continue in our future broadcasts. One of the great mysteries of the early part of the 1969-70 season was the play of legendary Jean Beliveau, captain of the Montreal Canadiens. Jean had spent a few days in a Montreal hospital, complaining of weakness and fatigue. He made it back for the beginning of the regular season, but it's been abundantly clear Big John is not himself. Jean is concerned at the 17th season, he just hasn't been able to get started with the Canadiens. He's worried especially that he just doesn't know why. The spirit is willing, and the talent is there, but John just can't get going. He's only scored two goals and three assists in the first couple of weeks of the season, but he hasn't had any drive, and he's been tired after only a few shifts on the ice. John said, I don't know what's wrong, and the doctors couldn't find any reason for my fatigue. Scoring two goals might have given me a lift, he said about his last game, But even in that game, I didn't have much drive. The big Canadian's captain looks wan and depressed and not too anxious to talk about his problems as according to Pat Kern of the Montreal Gazette. These problems also include periodic headaches and a reluctance to take pills to which he has been allergic in the past. He says it's hard to feel like playing hockey when you wake up just as tired as you went to bed maybe it's age after all i am 39 years old he says pessimists have started speculation big john will retire before christmas but those who know the man say he'll stay into playoff time and with or without sleep he'll captain the playoffs in in june if they make it that far problem with that is The Canadians are not playing good hockey, and there's a distinct possibility they may not be around for the postseason celebrations this time. Ten years before the 1969-70 season, to be more exact, November 1st, 1959, Jacques Plante of the Montreal Canadiens was injured in a game against the New York Rangers when he was shot in the face by Andy Bathgate, the Rangers' superstar sniper. Plant refused to go back into goal until coach Toe Blake allowed him to wear the mask. Jacques spoke to Frank Dolson of the Philadelphia Inquirer this week and just had a couple of interesting uh, anecdotes about that uh, first donning of the mask in the NHL. Oh, the criticism, he said, and he laughed. He said, I have scrapbooks filled with stories. The second of November, 1959, that's when it started. We, the Canadians, were ahead one nothing. After three minutes, Andy Bathgate ripped my nose all up. He was about 10 feet in front of me, and he tried to get the shot up. Again, Jock's voice kind of trailed off. We know what happened. Toe Blake looked at me, Jock said. He asked me, what do you think? Can you play? Now, those, remember, were the one goalie days in the NHL when it was standard procedure for a man to wipe off the blood, stitch up the wound, and return to his post. But Plant was hurt badly. So badly that he told Blake, I'll go back in if I can wear the mask. Well, Toe really didn't have any alternative. He told him to get back and go. He wore the mask and he won 3-1. And he went 10 more games without being beaten. The critics rapped him. They said it was terrible. It was a bad thing. Only once, though, did Jock ever face an enemy rush without a mask in place again. That's right. A lot of people don't know this. But once more in Jacques' career, he would play a game without wearing a mask. He tells us about that. I was going for my fifth Desna Trophy in a row that year as the NHL's top goalie, and near the end of the season, I was in a slump. We were in Detroit, and Blake came to me and suggested that I take the mask off. I did, and we lost 3 nothing. After the game, believe it or not, Toe came up to Jacques and said, Jacques, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have asked it. So yes, Jacques Plante did play without a mask once after that 1959 incident on November 1st, and it wasn't successful. We're glad he didn't win that game. They may never have let it put him on again. Keeping with our goaltending theme here, most of you know about Manon Rayon, the young French-Canadian woman, that played an exhibition game with the Tampa Bay Lightning, did you know there was another professional woman goaltender many years before that? This is a story that Associated Press put out around the United States in 1969. Billed as the first female professional hockey player in North America, 18-year-old goalie Karen Koch is not interested in boys, only in hockey. I just don't have the time for boys, said the 130-pound freshman at Northern Michigan University. She's already beaten out four men for a goaltender position with the semi-professional Marquette Iron Rangers. Les Brum, coach for the United States Hockey League team, said Miss Koch will have a regular contract, although she isn't likely to be the starting netminder. Brum said she'd play in at least seven exhibition games this year, starting in November 1st. While the brawny semi-pro players thunder in and shoot at little brunette garden Annette, they don't take it easy on her. Robert Castor, 170-pound Iron Ranger left winger, says she's got a lot of guts. It's hard to believe a girl would stand there and let us shoot at her. She's not scared. Now Karen herself says, I can't remember when I wasn't playing hockey. It's probably true the goalies get hurt most often, but it's really not as bad as most people think. Well, it took 10 stitches to close the gash under her left eye after her father whammed the puck at her two seasons ago. She was back tending goal three days later, but her parents made her put a mask on. She doesn't regret that decision. Miss Koch says her parents don't object at all to her love of hockey. They told me as long as I think I can handle it, they won't interfere. Now, Ranger players are wondering what sort of dressing room procedures will be observed once she joins the team. I don't know what's going to happen then, Caster said. He's 23 and he spent some time coaching her. There are no shower room problems since she leaves her dormitory already dressed for the ice except for her bulky pads and she trots back to the campus after scrimmages. A hockey player since she was 12, Miss Koch said she enrolled in Northern Michigan University expecting to play varsity hockey. Then she was upset to learn afterwards the school had no hockey team. She tried out for the Iron Rangers who found themselves without a backup last year. She beat out four guys and now she's got a position and gets some money for playing it. The 1969-70 season seems to indicate that it's open season on game officials, at least according to some NHL coaches. Harry Sinden recently blew his top, and after 18 hours of reflection, he wouldn't change a thing about what he said. He severely criticized the work of referee Vern Buffy after the Maple Leafs had tied the Bruins in a game, and Harry's thinking now it's time it all came out. This is not a new feud. This is thing between Bruins coach and the man who wears the number one badge among NHL referees has been going on for a long time, at least eight years. It reaches back to 1961, when Sinden was a player coach in Kingston, Ontario. Buffy at that time was a relatively new official. Sinden said... I'd have to say he never respected me as a player or as a coach, although I certainly have respected him as a referee. But he's been on me since 1961, and actually I'm afraid to say anything to him because he'll throw me out of a game or call him more closely on our players. It's gotten to the point I can't even holler the normal things that a coach will shout at an official. I'm not talking about obscenities, just normal things like wake up and keep your eyes open. I wouldn't dare say anything to him, and I'm not questioning his honesty or his integrity. I'm talking about the way he handles a game. At Oakland, after the game, we were in civilian clothes, and I wanted to ask him about a ruling and find out where I was wrong. I thought I must have been wrong. He wouldn't even talk to me. He just told me, go learn my rules. I learned all right. I made a call, and I found out he was 100% wrong. Another bad thing is we've had him in four of our last six games. That's wrong. There should be better scheduling than that because I say that referees are human beings and they can get influenced by seeing the same team all the time just as a player can. They're not dishonest. They're not incompetent. But if a player gets out of line in the first game and says something, it's only a human trait. The referees would be calling them awfully close on that player. And when a team has a referee three games in a row... It can be tough on the club. They're waiting for some calls. Scotty Bowman of the St. Louis Blues, he doesn't count sheep before he falls asleep. He counts the instances that National Hockey League referee Bob Sloan has influenced the outcome of games involving the Blues. Bowman says, I can't stand that guy, but I don't want to incriminate myself. It would cost me money if I said everything I thought of him. However, Scotty did say that Sloan lacked, quote, judgment. He blew the game in the second period on the weekend when he didn't give Red Berenson a penalty shot. With New York leading 3-2 and only seconds remaining in the middle period, Berenson stepped out from the penalty box, picked up a loose puck at center, and raced in on goalie Eddie Jockerman. He was hooked and hauled down from behind by New York's Vic Adfield. Sloan ruled that Red Berenson had gotten his shot away, nullifying the possibility of a penalty shot, although the puck barely dribbled off the St. Louis player's stick. Don't get me wrong, said Bowman. I'm not blaming Sloan for our defeat. I'm blaming ourselves for keeping him in the league as long as we have. Nobody has any confidence in the guy. I know it upsets my team every time we see him out there. A John Ashley or a Vern Buffy can blow 10 calls and doesn't bother you because you know they're not going to be influenced by pressure or the crowd. They'll make the right call when it counts. This guy, well, all you have to do is look at his record. There's trouble everywhere he works. wonder if Clarence Campbell will have anything to say to Harry Sinden and Scotty Bowman about their comments about on-ice officials. And now it's time for our person of the week. And this week's Person of the Week is a guy we named just because he's such a good guy. He's a guy everybody would like. Everybody has good things to say about a guy who's been named by many people as the cleanest player ever to play in the National Hockey League. Val Fontaine began his professional career in the Western Hockey League, playing seven games with the new Westminster Royals in the 1954-55 season. He then moved to Seattle for three years. Just after the 57-58 season ended, he had made an impression on the Detroit Red Wings, who purchased his contract and he played next four seasons in the red and white. In the 1963 intra-league draft, Thal was claimed by the Rangers, and he spent up to 1965 in February with them when the Red Wings brought him back via a waiver claim. In the 1967 expansion draft, he was claimed by the Pittsburgh Penguins, and he enjoyed five solid seasons with the Penguins before jumping to the WHA's Alberta Oilers in 1972. Thal was happy to play out his final years of his career, in his home province of Alberta. During the Penguins' first road trip of the season to Minnesota, Val sat down with Dan Stoneking of the Minneapolis Star, and they had a bit of a conversation. Val said, statistically speaking, they say he's the nicest guy in the NHL. In his 620 games as an NHLer up to that point, now 36-year-old forward spent only 24 minutes in the penalty box. Even more amazing, the Penguins' left wing had just 50 minutes in misdemeanors in 16 seasons of pro hockey, and that's a sport not particularly suited for gentle souls. I guess I'm the original Mr. Nice Guy, said Val. Aggressive hockey isn't my style, and it should be easy to see why. He's only 150 pounds, five foot nine. Now, Fontaine has been whistled down for only one league infraction in the last four seasons in the NHL. That was a two-minute minor for tripping against Oakland last season. Actually, I could have more penalties. It's just that the referees don't pay much attention to me. Certain guys in this league have a reputation for picking up penalties, and all they have to do is look cross-eyed at another player, and they're off the ice. My reputation lets me get away with a little more out there. He remembers his most aggressive year was 1954 in the WHL when he was caught for a whopping 11 minutes while playing for Seattle. I guess I went haywire that year, he says. Picked up five minutes for fighting. It's the only hockey fight I've ever been involved in. Now about his own team, Val said lack of an aggressive club has been our biggest problem. But we've been bumping a few clubs around this season, and it shows on the scoreboard. We're playing very well, but we just haven't been able to get that first win. We've really been beaten in only one game, Fontaine says. And he's optimistic that the Penguins will start winning, winning enough that he says we'll see them in the postseason in April. Well, everyone, that's episode three for this week. Lots of interesting stuff going on 50 years ago and lots more to come. So what did we learn from our podcast this week? Well, we learned that Carl Brewer is a really, really interesting guy. Very bright, very intelligent. We learned that Carl thinks a lot of Frank Mahovlich. We learned that Eddie Shack is a real character now, just as he was 50 years ago. We know he won't ever change. We know that while they were putting up a good front privately, the brass in the NHL had to be a little dismayed over the negative reactions to their expansion plans and teams that they thought would definitely want to be in the league are not going to make applications. We learned that while everyone was touting former Toronto GM coach Punch imlac to be the new leader of the Vancouver team next season, Punch has been talking to the prospective Buffalo ownership under the guise of a newspaper columnist, and he had some inside information, perhaps predicting or indicating that in the future... Punch might find a spot in Buffalo. We learned that how in 1969, teens or agents were capable of using the media to circumvent tampering rules and get word out to other clubs about possible trades. And we learned that some team managements aren't shy about complaining about game officials and naming names. Maybe they'll get a little more cautious when Clarence Campbell decides that such activities will cost them money. We hope you enjoy us weekly and follow on as the 1969-70 hockey season unfolds. It's an interesting ride right now, especially with the expansion process in full swing. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our introduction music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage and other musical pieces in the cast are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail and, of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at at1969hockeynews, on Facebook under 50 Years Ago on Hockey, and at our WordPress site, hockey50yearsago.com. We'll be back next week with some more speculation on the possibility of a rival league that would establish itself by rating star players from the NHL, more on that formal offer of purchase of the Vancouver Canucks, Bobby Hull's return to the Blackhawks, and so much more. Thanks for joining us everyone and we'll see you next time. When the-